Want to visit outer space? Wondering when you might actually be able to? On today's show, we're going to talk with space tourism guide Valerie Stimmack about that and much more. So don't go anywhere. Matthew Felix on air starts now. Welcome to Matthew Felix On Air, coming to you from WordSpace Studios in San Francisco, California. People who create, people who make a difference. Hope your new year is off to a great start. Now, I realize it's already February, but since this is my first show of 2019, I just wanted to at least acknowledge that uh, we have transitioned to a new year since my last show. Show was on hiatus for exactly two months, but that does not mean that I was just chilling out. Far from it. Although, of course, I did take a break over the holidays, Uh, For most of the past two months, I was actually doing a lot behind the scenes. And besides planning this new season, I added the show to uh, some new major platforms, including Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, uh, lots of others. So now it's even easier to listen to Matthew Felix on air as a podcast. And for those of you who are listening uh, on those platforms for the very first time, maybe, welcome and thank you for listening. And it's not just this podcast, by the way, that's on the new platforms. It's, It's all of my podcasts. And uh, I have the three that are based on my books. There's Porcelain Travels, which we're going to talk about in a second. And then there is my Misadventures in Morocco podcast, my Pablo's Intuition podcast, which is about a young Spaniard's awakening to his intuition. And then I have two spinoffs of this show um, from when I was doing this show, from when I started the show at the radio, the, uh, the internet radio station. And the reason I decided to do those two spinoffs is because um, I, that, that content was too recent still because it was just last year, and it's too good, and I didn't want it to get lost in the archives. So the, uh, the first one of the two is Words and Images, and like the title suggests, that's my conversations with writers and filmmakers and artists and that sort of thing. And then on uh, just when January 12th, so just about a month ago, I launched the second sort of spinoff podcast from this podcast, which is called Travelers on Travel. And again, as the name suggests, that is all the conversations that I had on the radio show when it was a radio show with uh, related to travel. So there are some some great episodes out there, and I'm releasing one every week for the next several weeks. So please check that out. Now, besides my uh, podcasts, I have been working very hard on promotion of my new book, Porcelain Travels. Humor, horror, and revelation in, on, and around toilets, tubs, and showers encountered on my travels. And I was really excited a few weeks ago when Porcelain Travels went to number one on Amazon's travel humor and uh, literary travel categories. And then it went back up to number one uh, this week again in travel humor. So thank you very much to all of you who uh, bought the book, who have left reviews, and who have helped to spread the word. I, I really appreciate it. Things are off to a great start. And um, yeah, thank you. But that being said, there is much more to be done. And I can't remember if I talked about this before the show went on hiatus or not, but um, I think I found out after. Uh, but the show has been accepted, or my, my book, a, a one-man show based on my book, I should say, has been accepted for um, the, a performance called Monday Night Marsh at the Marsh Theater here in San Francisco. And what they do is they take four performers who are working on shows And they get to do their shows twice in one month. So I am really excited about that. A little nervous about that. I haven't done anything on stage. And I've certainly never done 
a 20 minute one man show before. So I've been working on that every single day, trying to memorize it and, and just get it down. Uh, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And that is Monday, March 11th. And then again on Monday, March 25th. So if you're going to be in San Francisco with Bay Area in March, please come see my show. Uh, tickets are already on sale at themarsh.org and uh, or you can buy them the night of the show. That's March. In April, I am really excited to uh, be presenting Porcelain Travels in Paris, and uh, I'm going to be presenting it at Litwings Paris. I'm really, really excited. You know, I lived in Paris, but I haven't been back for several years, and um, many of you have no doubt heard me talk about Litwings, and Erin um, Byrne, author and filmmaker Erin Byrne, she organizes Litwings three times a year twice here in Sausalito, which is just on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge, for those of you who aren't local, and once in Paris. And each event features one writer, one photographer, and one filmmaker. And so when Erin asked me if I would be her writer, she didn't have to ask twice. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited. I can't wait. So if you're going to be in Paris in April, it's April 11th. And I realize that might sound sort of silly, but actually some friends are, are already going to be over there. So some of my friends will be there. Um, in the City of Lights, April 11th. So like I said, please stop by and I'll have lots more information about that on my site. And uh, I'll talk about it, obviously, in upcoming episodes. Oh, and the thing I forgot to mention is that I'm planning on doing this show from Paris, which I'm really excited about. And I have to work out some of the technical stuff related to that. Um, but that should be fun if I can figure that out. Maybe we'll do it from the Eiffel Tower. I don't know. Uh, last thing I'll say about Porcelain Travels is that it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, and just about everywhere else in paperback and ebook formats. And if you've already read it and you liked it, if you could please, please, please leave a review, I would be so grateful. The reviews are indispensable for, for getting the word out and the social proof for people who might not, you know, otherwise they might be on the fence about whether to, to check it out. So really appreciate, um, just takes a second and I really appreciate it. Last thing before we start uh, today's show, New York Times next week, I want to t uh, tell you about next week's show. So next week, New York Times bestselling mystery author, uh, author of the Amy Lou Duke mystery series, Kara Black will be on the show and she's going to talk about her most recent book, which I'm currently reading, Murder on the Left Bank. And hopefully she'll talk with us about her upcoming book in the series as well. And like I said, she's a New York Times bestseller. She's been writing the series for 20 years. And um, I'm really excited to talk to her about, uh, about all that. I don't really read much mystery. And I'm really enjoying um, getting back into a genre I haven't read for, uh, for quite a while. So after this quick message from my sponsor, Wordspace Studios, um, which is actually me delivering the message, but still... Uh, we'll be back to talk about space tourism. A quick thanks to San Francisco's Wordspace Studios for sponsoring Matthew Felix on Air. Wordspace Studios' mission is to bring together writers and thinkers of all ages and experience. Wordspace will soon be offering creative writing workshops, a literary book club, and guided writing groups. And Wordspace is already offering writing residencies. They are submission-based, and they provide writers with room and board for up to one month. To find out more, you can email info at wordspacestudios.com. Valerie Stemek is an Oakland-based travel writer and photographer. She has lived in Seattle, London, Indiana, and Alaska, and she has worked with Lonely Planet since 2014, as well as producing freelance articles for other publications, such as the San Francisco Chronicle, Travel and Leisure, Afar, National Geographic Traveler. She's smiling because she didn't give me this in her bio. I had to go, doing some, I had to go do some digging myself because she, had, she gave me like two sentences, and I appreciate people's modesty, but so many guests do that. And it's like, no. You've done a lot, and I want to brag about it. So anyway, 
San Francisco Chronicle, Travel and Leisure, Afar, National Geographic Traveler, and also friends and repeat guests of Matthew Felix on Air, online travel magazine Hidden Compass. And I loved her recent story, by the way, and you should check it out, on the White Redwoods. Is that what it was? The Ghost Redwoods? Albino. Albino. Yeah. yeah, Albino Redwoods. That's We could have a whole story about that. Really fascinating. So hiddencompass.org, I think, is their website. Really worth checking out that story and lots of other stories. But getting back to Valerie's bio, she started a travel blog, Valerie in Valise, in 2013, to, start, uh, to share her stories and trips about traveling the world. But today I am excited to have here have her here in her capacity as founder and editor of Space Tourism Guide. Welcome, Valerie. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. So, okay, first off, because um, like I said, I did do more research on you. Uh, why Venus? Um, so that's actually funny. It's Venus is not a very hospitable place. So like okay. it's not. I don't want to go there. But C.S. Lewis wrote a trilogy called the silent planet trilogy and it's about three different planets that this man is trans like transported to yeah and it was i believe saturn mars and venus and the one on venus was just a stunningly beautiful piece of literature and i just remember as a young person really liking at least c.s lewis's interpretation of what venus would be like yeah okay and so the reason just just for um for guests the reason what what i what i was actually asking valerie was um on her on her website on this the space tourism website each of the uh, contributors each of the the staff they list what their favorite um what their favorite planet is and so i just thought that that was funny one of your um what was the one i wrote down heidi said that hers her favorite is saturn because it's the flattest planet and has 150 moons yep so i thought that that was interesting should everyone have a favorite planet uh, if you want to write for me, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. So that's that's where that's coming from. But how how do you choose? Like you, yours makes sense. That's a great, great sort of rationale for how you choose your, how you chose yours. But how would you recommend someone choose a favorite a favorite planet? Typically, people have chosen them based upon what they've seen, and they have a distinct memory of seeing a certain planet or learning a certain fact. So, like for example, Heidi's is very much based. She learned those cool little trivia facts about Saturn. I mean, Saturn is beautiful, also. Yeah. And those must have stuck with her enough that when I asked her, that was what popped into her head. Right. All right. Fair enough. Okay. So before we get too far, and I'm going to have to keep adjusting my microphone because I can't, it will not stop moving. Um, it's going to drive me crazy. But before we get too far, I did want to mention that we're going to um, field questions. If anyone has questions at the end of the show, I've only done that on one show before. And uh, I do want to incorporate that into the show in this new season, in this third season. And Valerie has graciously uh, agreed to do that. So as we're having the conversations, exactly. So bring on the questions. Um, and like I said, we'll do that at the end of the show. So get out your notebooks and take notes and make sure that you, uh, that you have a question for us at the end. Okay. Uh, why did you start Space Tourism Guide? I started Space Tourism Guide. I had been writing Valerie and Belize for several years at that point. And while I love travel writing, and actually I make most of my income as a travel writer and travel editor, I was feeling a little bit uh, unstimulated by the opportunity. Actually, my best example is Paris, because how many different ways can we make a list of the best cafes in Paris? Exactly. And that's a lot of what gets produced on the internet right now about Paris or about any given destination. Right. And I sort of just cast my mind and said, well, what's left? Where can we go that we haven't been? Where are the new stories going to be in the future that I could be telling? And there were two that came to mind, the deep sea and outer space. And I sort of thought about it and I said, actually, that's not a leap to outer space sounds out there, space pun intended, but it's actually much closer than people realize. And I said that in 2017, we're now two years on. And now I think finally, as we'll get to, we are right on the cutting edge of actually sending normal people like you and I to space, which has never been done. And it's going to unlock 
experiences that the human mind is barely capable of wrapping itself around. It's a really exciting opportunity. Yeah. So uh, you and I met when we were on a panel for Bay Area Travel Writers. And as soon as you mentioned, or as soon as they, when they introduced you, I guess, and that was, that was in your bio, I was just, I just thought that's so smart. It's so timely. It's such a great niche to sort of just jump on. And it's not one I would have ever, ever thought of, of getting into. Um, so anyway, yeah. So that just, that just made a, a, a big impression. I thought she's, She's totally ahead of the curve there. I actually got into a Twitter argument with a CEO of a major travel publication because he was like, it's never going to happen and it's never going to be affordable. And I said, Antarctica was the same way 50 years ago. Interesting. And many people go once during their lifetimes to Antarctica. Yeah. So it's not a leap to think that once the technology is developed to travel to any given destination, we will scale it. It will become affordable. And frankly, I was sort of like frustrated. And I said, fine, if you won't write about it, I will. Right. And I started my website. Right. There you go. Um, well, one of the other reasons you said you started this was because of the number of your friends and family who, who had never seen the Milky Way. Yep. And you just mentioned Antarctica. So it's all kind of several segues coming together. I just had um, Savani Babu, again, mm -hmm. Hidden Compass. So we just mentioned her. We're, so there are three or four or five different strains here that are all coming together. Uh, I had her on to talk about her travels in Antarctica. And then, but my last show of 2018, I had her on. We talked about dark sky conservation. Yes. And um, so I thought it was interesting that that would be part of, of the space tourism sort of um, an angle of space tourism. You know, it's not just going up. It's not just going up into outer space. There's, there's a lot more going on here, right? So um, can you tell us a little bit more then about what we mean by space tourism? Because it is a term that encompasses more than people might think just on the surface. Absolutely. So I think of it as an umbrella term and I am... A little bit progressive in that way and that I'm trying to define this term as not strictly just going to space um, but to me space tourism is an umbrella that also includes what I call astro tourism that would be earth-based dark sky tourism so stargazing meteor showers solar well solar eclipses are usually daytime lunar eclipses seeing the aurora um, rocket tourism, which was a term I first saw coined by Lonely Planet, and I pay very close attention when they cover anything like this, uh -huh. uh, which was going to see rocket launches. And then there's this new branch that sort of overlapped with space tourism called science tourism, and that's going to like air and space museums and space experiences that could be riding a zero gravity flight. And there's a lot there. There's also space tourism, which is going to space. To me, that's all space tourism. It's all related to space. So I call it that I have an article that's here's your new definition of space tourism right includes all of those things right okay so let's talk about uh just a couple of those things in a little more detail so astro tourism first of all it's a really cool name um and and that is that's what specifically I know you just ran through several of them but tell me again what astro tourism is yeah astro tourism is I call it's like earth-based space tourism so yeah. it would be stargazing and what most people don't realize is that you may not travel very far, but you typically have to travel to go stargazing because the vast majority of people in the U.S. and Western Europe live in urban areas with a lot of light pollution. Right. So you might be doing an overnight trip or a night trip, but you're going to get in the car. You're probably going to drive out of your neighborhood or your right. city. Um, meteor showers, uh, those only occur on certain days of each year. So people will typically plan and travel to get to a dark sky location to try and see them. Eclipses lunar or solar eclipses so during the day obviously solar eclipses have caught a lot of attention the 2017 solar eclipse that was the same time that i really started paying attention and uh -huh. so many more people traveled for that than anyone anticipated uh, lunar eclipses we've seen in the last roughly 18 months we've had three eclipses over the americas and europe and people 
get extremely interested when those kinds of events happen. So they're planning, you know, I want to know when the next one is. I want to try and see it from a really cool place. Um, and then the Aurora, which has always actually been, that's probably the most traditional sort of astrotourism, traveling to a place on a northern or southern latitude where you can see the Aurora. And okay. So. And that's that's one thing I was also wondering about. I don't know. I think you saw on Twitter you had posted something about the southern Aurora. And I didn't even know there was a southern because we always hear about the northern lights. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it makes sense, yes. but then I guess it only makes sense if you actually know what the auroras are. So what are the auroras? So on a very light scientific Yeah, don't, or, don't go too deep. Don't go too uh, deep because you'll lose me. Yeah, it's roughly when particles from the sun strike the atmosphere of the earth and excite particles in the earth's atmosphere and they emit light. Interesting. And so it only happens on certain parts of the globe where um, the magnetic field of the earth allows that excited emission of light to occur. It's basically around a circle around the top, around the, the North Pole, and a circle around the, the South Pole. Um, the reason we know a lot more about the Northern Lights or the Aurora Borealis is that a lot more people live on the Northern Hemisphere because there's a lot more landmass right. on, the, on the Northern Hemisphere. Right. In the Southern Hemisphere, there are very few places you can see the Southern Lights. In fact, the, what I, I found when I was researching is that a lot of people want to know if you can see them from the continent of Africa. You cannot. It's too mm -hmm. far north. It yeah. doesn't look very far north when you look on a map, but it right. actually is. So Tasmania, New Zealand, Australia, Patagonia, Antarctica, that's it. And that's, it. that's not a particularly well, like most of those places are not as populated as Northern Europe, Canada, sure. Alaska. Yeah. Though that's where a lot of people see the Northern Lights. Right, right. Um, I thought it was interesting, too, that you talked about in one of the articles I read on your website, just that at this astrotourism, that it's it's really getting a lot of press as well. And um, Lonely Planet, like you said, Lonely Planet has has started giving this press National Geographic named both astrotourism and space tourism as trends to watch. I don't know, was that this year? That was this year. This year. San Francisco Chronicle named space tourism part of their future of travel series for yep. 2019. Uh, so it's really it's happening. It is. And it's very exciting to see sort of the, the big guys recognize that that this is a trend because when that happens everybody who is sort of on the sidelines says no wait i like space like i like to see the stars right. let me plan a trip too and that's what i wanted to get in front of i wanted to be right. the resource when people go looking for how do i travel to do this or how, where do i stay when i want to see the northern lights or i wanted to be the answer for all of those questions when the big guys like lonely planet and nat geo talk about it everyone starts looking for those resources right Tell me just a couple places before we leave behind astrotourism that whether I want to just see stars because, I mean, I've been in the Sahara when all the electricity went out and I mean, it is worth traveling to see the stars. And again, that was part of why I had Savani on to talk about dark sky conservation because it's just, you think you know, but you don't know until you go to these places. So, so whether it's stargazing or aurora gazing, just two or three places that you would say, if, if you only had one opportunity, one or two opportunities, where would you go? That's, or two or three. <laughs> that's really hard to narrow down from the whole no world. No one said this was going to be easy. Um, I'd say the southwestern U.S. is a great candidate. Really? Lots of national park space, so a lot of protected lands where you're not going to get a lot of light pollution. Um, Hawaii. Actually, any island. Um, any island in the world that's small enough, it has, even if it has developed um, towns or cities, it's going to be surrounded by a lot of dark sky because it's in the ocean. Uh, for the aurora, Iceland and Norway are the big two that a lot of people go to, but if you wanted to ask where I want to go, I'd go to Finland and Greenland. And why is that? Um, they're both still a little bit off the beaten track for travelers. You're going to have the same, especially in Finland, you're going to have very similar experiences that you can have in Norway. But Greenland is vastly underdeveloped. It's mostly yeah. ice. And it's kind of a, a trek to get there. It's a trek to travel within the country. It's a lot of work. 
And that makes the reward of seeing what that country has to offer day by day and by night much sweeter to me. And if you like reindeer, you can get a lot. There are a lot of reindeer up there. I love reindeer. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> grew up in Alaska. I know, I've oh. met a few reindeer. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't. I wasn't sure if you grew up there yeah. or. Okay. All I grew right. up. Actually, it's funny. I grew up seeing the Aurora. I didn't realize it was as special as it was until I moved away. And I think that a lot of my passion comes from. I grew up in this with this opportunity. I want more people to have it. Yep. Yeah, that's funny because again, to bring up Savani, and she's in Africa right now, so I'm sure her ears are burning in Africa. But um, she—that was one of the her one of the things she cited for um, for getting involved in the dark sky stuff was when she was growing up, she could see the Milky Way mm-hmm. from 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 her town, and she can't see it anymore at her parents' house where she grew up wow. because things have you know changed. There's more light. There's more development. So it's interesting that some of these passions, and not surprising, I guess, but it's just sort of validating that some of these passions that we end up pursuing later on are perhaps tied to especially especially in space i i think you're hard pressed to find a child or a person who was a child which we all were who didn't want to be an astronaut right we grow out of it because we thought it was impossible and it's no longer impossible which is why people are getting really excited about space tourism Uh and willing to spend a lot of money right now i know a lot of money and we're going to talk about the money because i mean i already knew it was going to be expensive obviously but when i saw some of the statistics preparing for today Wow. Okay. But before we get there, you mentioned rocket launches yes. a little while ago. And this is another form of space tourism mm-hmm. where you're not going in the, you're not being launched in the rocket, but you're watching rockets be launched. Uh, so can, and you said that that was your favorite topic right now on your website. Now, I don't know when the, when the website was updated, maybe that was six months ago, but I'm just curious, just tell us a little bit about rocket launching as a tourist activity. Sure. I mean, I think if you've met anyone who lives in Florida, who lives near sure. Orlando, sure. they will, they will attest to what I'm going to say, but there, there is something incredibly humbling about the ability for something a human has built to defy gravity. Mm -hmm. If you think about physics, not getting, again, not getting too deep into the science, gravity is the given that we've never been able to figure out. We don't understand the, we, it's a given. We don't understand the mechanics of it. We don't know why, you know, we've, we've sort of understand it, but we have no control over it. It's one of the few true principles of physics that has never been broken and we can build a thing which defies it, which pushes something away from a mass, which has a massive amount of gravity. And if you've ever seen a rocket launch and you felt that it's of this deep rumble that's kind of rumbles through your body, but through your soul yeah. and you get this awe, like many people ex- describe it as a very emotional experience. I experienced a launch back in 2014. It was deeply emotional. Not, I think the wind sort of pushes tears out of your eyes, but it's not just because <laughs> of the wind that you're kind of, uh-huh. well, I mean, everyone is, it gets emotional at that launch. And, um, you know, some people live in the area where they can see them regularly, but most of us are going to have to travel. And there are only so many places in the world that we launch from. So again, you're going to need to put the effort in to see the reward. And launches don't even always happen on the day you anticipate. So you're going to be patient and the the effort you put in really pays off later. Right. And what are some of the, I I thought it was interesting, some of the places that you mentioned. Sure. Besides Florida. Yeah. uh, What are some of the area, what some of the other places you can go to watch rocket launches? One is sort of right down the road, globally speaking. You can Mm. watch launches here in California, down in Lompoc. Okay. Um, Vandenberg Air Force Base launches now spacex is launching from there ula launches there so you can see launches there great wine in the area while you're waiting for hey, the launch even better um you can go to some really interesting places um french guiana yeah that's the one one of the two yep. i was thinking of yep down on the the northern coast of south america right um japan is launching from this basically the southernmost main island 
Um, Russia launches from both within Russia. Those are typically military launches, but down in Kazakhstan is where they do their their passenger launches. That one, that's on my list. Um, Most of these places where they're more government or um, privately managed spaceports, you don't typically get invited unless you're a customer Mm -hmm. or a guest of a customer. They're starting to open that up because they realize people want to travel. Russia has been very aggressively putting out headlines about we want we want rocket tourism. We want space tourism. We're going to train you. Come come to Russia. They understand, especially probably they have access to markets that the U.S. doesn't have the same level of access to. Right. I'm thinking particularly of you know Eastern Asia. Yeah. Some of those markets would rather go to Russia to do these than to fly to the U.S. or can't fly to the U.S. and do these kinds of trips. Right. Right. Fascinating. Well, I was just in Kazakhstan. So we can talk about the stands if you decide to go to the stands because I can't recommend them highly enough. That's what I've heard I did. from everyone. Yeah, yeah. And and again, it's one of those places too that now seems to be the time to go. Yep. Very, very few tourists. Mm-hmm. And so the people were just... And I hate even saying this because it sounds cliche. The people were so warm and welcoming and everybody young old wanted to talk to you and why are you here because again there's not there's no industry that's developed i mean there are you know obviously some places to stay and things like that but there isn't much tourist infrastructure that's developed you're still taking shared taxis even long distances and um and there's just such a variety of the silk road architecture and then the Pamir mountains the um like I said, we'll have to talk about... Sign me up. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> seriously. Seriously. And I can... Yeah, I would love to have an excuse to talk talk more about that. Okay. But what we're going to talk more about now is the third uh, big thing that you talked about in the article. I don't actually remember where it was. Anyway, wherever it was on your site, uh, that's not about getting into a ship quite yet, but it's getting closer is Space Camp. Yeah. So this is something that, again, anybody can do. Mm-hmm. And uh, it sounded really, really cool. So tell us all about Space Camp. Yeah, I had the chance to go to Huntsville, Alabama, which is where Space Camp is located. And actually, I want to make sure I make this point. There is a Space Camp in Russia, too. Okay. Most people don't know that. Yeah. It's all in Russian, and you're going to need to jump through some hoops to get to go there. But there is one in Russia as well. So it's not the only Space Camp in the world, but our Space Camp uh, is in Huntsville, Alabama. And I got to spend a day doing a sort of... Um, highly compressed, but very representative attempt at, you know, what space camp is like. And they offer it for both children and adults. Adults are totally welcome. And I mean, I would do it again in a heartbeat. I do. I want the three day experience. I want the whole thing. Right. Um, You get to do simulated missions. You get to, you, you suit up with the assistance of one of their team members and they hoist you up on cables and you have to do a sort of a spacewalk with a partner where you're, you're clipping in and out and you can't drop anything. Cause you know, in space, if you drop something, it floats away. Well, and something you said, if I can interrupt really quickly, something you said about that is that I'm going to look at the quote here. Cause I have it, I think on the next page, something about it being really, Oh yeah. You said spacewalking One of the most complex and exhausting parts of space camp is taking a spacewalk. Just like astronauts report, spacewalking to be an exhilarating but arduous task. So it's really hard. Yes. And I was kind of, again, naively having no idea. But my, I guess if if I had ever paused to think about it, I probably would have thought they're weightless. And so certainly that has its own challenges, but it wouldn't be that arduous necessarily. So why, what's so tough about it? It was both physically and mentally exhausting. So when you're, the suits we were wearing were obviously not anywhere near to the standard that they wear when they go outside of the International Space Station to do work. But you're, you're, you're very limited in your, your motion, your um, flexibility, your ability to do even simple tasks like turn your head or itch your nose. Uh All of that is limited. But you're also, you're doing procedures, even if you're familiar with them, which astronauts train for years to know these procedures and they have guides and they, you know, they're not just doing it from memory. Everything must be accounted for. 
if even a single bolt drops from your procedure, one, you can't finish your procedure, and two, you now have a piece of metal flying around your ship, which could cause serious damage to you or your ship or your fellow space uh, companions while they're out in their suits. Right, right. It's it's a lot. There's just a lot going on, a lot more than I was anticipating would be. You know, I thought it was going to be fun, and it yeah. was like, well, this is the hardest part TV, of the day. In the movies, right, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so I want to come back to some other specific things you did, but um, before that, you, there were some interesting things in, again, one of your articles. I'm sorry, I should have put which title, but you'll know which article it is. The um, Soprano, somebody who works at the Space Center, her last name is Soprano. Oh, yeah. yep. uh, so she had a couple of interesting quotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is, we're trying to inspire the kids who will be the ones to go to Mars. Yes. What does it take to live independent on Earth? We're moving um, out of space shuttles and towards space flight. Then she also said, um, we also see, or this was actually you saying, that you also saw a Mars colony-based simulation that mm-hmm. was under construction. Can you tell me, and this is probably something that I should know, but Mars is all the rage right now, right? And so far as the next frontier, if space is the next frontier for tourists, Mars is the next frontier for space exploration or or one of them. Yes. One of them, let's say. Yeah, because we have a lot of other stuff going on. I don't really know why Mars is the next thing. It's because it's got water. Why why are we so drawn to Mars? And we've, we've, we've done the moon. I get that. But why is it Mars versus the other planets? And I just, I... Like I said, I'm aware that's probably a dumb question, but what the hell? No, it's all right. It's a perfectly reasonable question. People <laughs> yeah. might be wondering. Yeah. So, okay, good. Um, Mars is relatively quite close to us. Yep. Mars has firm land and reasonable uh, temperatures. Uh-huh, okay. um, it has a lot of the same elements that we encounter here on Earth. It has. It, it's very likely that Mars was very Earth-like in its past, okay. which means that the basic building blocks of of what we need to survive are likely there or were there. And we just have to figure out how to unlock them. Okay. Interesting. Um, it's so there's a great show. National Geographic did a show called Mars. That was, I thought that was one of the most accurate things. I'm sure there's some scientific inaccuracies to far more intelligent people watching than I saw, but it sort of, to me, it was a realistic representation of how Mars is, is the best candidate. I mean, the nearest things to us, Mars, Venus, Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Jupiter is not an option. Yeah. There are some moons when we start to look at moons of Jupiter and moons of Saturn. Yeah. But you're then on a much smaller body that's going to have limited resources. Mars is really our, our next-door neighbor, galactically speaking. And there's a lot of things that we need that are already there. And we can just, we just have for to figure survival. out how to harness things that. Things we need for yes. survival. Yes. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we could probably have a whole show about Mars. Probably. I don't know if you you're ready for that. should bring someone who knows Mars well, that's the a thing. lot more. Yeah, um, but that, that's interesting. Okay, the other thing that was in that interview that I just want to touch on really quickly. Soprano, I don't know her first name. Robin. I Robin Soprano Robin. From, this, from the Space Center. I've got a bug on my hand here. Uh, said, our goal is how we can tell NASA's story. As we're moving toward commercial crew and turn over the ISS, the International Space Station, to private industry, we try to model that here. So the question I had... I know that things are getting more commercial and things, but is the government getting out of space exploration or is the private sector just getting into it as well? I think I thought that quote I kind of was leading. I wasn't sure what the implication was. Yeah, I think the pie is getting bigger. Mm -hmm. I think we have the technology to do more in space than we ever have before. And um, NASA, what I got from my trip to Huntsville, which included a visit to Marshall Space Flight Center, which is where they're building the space launch system, which is NASA's next big rocket to go to the phrases, the moon, Mars, and beyond. That's like the very specific language that they use. Um, uh, NASA feels at this point that their job is to push the envelope. Okay. Um, The commercial sector can now manage the low Earth orbit, the ISS, even, you know, moon transfers, Mars transfers eventually, 
NASA sort of wants to recapture, and I really, I think I appreciate this. I think it's a unique proposition for a government organization. They want to recapture that um, magic that we had when we tried to get to the moon. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. who better to do that than the, really one of the only government organizations in the world that has bipartisan support, global support to push the envelope in that way. Interesting. NASA okay. NASA's bound by certain things. They have taxpayers they're accountable to and they're very conscientious about the risk to human life that the commercial sector doesn't have to behave quite the As same much way. So, sure. But NASA is also they understand they have a unique role to play and it isn't necessarily just running supplies up and down and doing science yep. experiments. That could be managed by the private sector very easily. Yep. Okay, cool. Makes sense. Uh, Before we move on from space camp, because we talked about the spacewalk and why that's, and then I took us in a couple different directions about things I was curious about, but you did a few other very cool things. So in addition to the spacewalk, what else might we do if we were to go to space camp? You'll do several um, training simulations. So we did the multi-axis trainer, which is the thing that makes you think you're going to throw up, but it doesn't. Yeah, that was interesting when I read that in your notes. Yeah, I am very motion sensitive and that does not affect you because your stomach actually stays in the same place. It's the center of your gravity when you're spinning around so that was really neat that's the one with all the ring concentric rings spinning and you're kind of flipping around i was gonna put that picture up and i I did i ran out of time and then i forgot uh, Uh, because that's a cool picture we did a moon uh moon gravity simulation so we got strapped into a chair that represents one sixth gravity which is what the moon has and we had a sort of a a guide holding us on a leash as we bounced up and down a sort of moon uh, landscape simulation what was that like uh, it was actually a lot harder than it you'd, you'd think because yeah. we were sort of constrained by the space we were allowed to move in, but it'd be very easy to underestimate your ability to propel yourself right. up and away from right. where you want to be. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the other thing you did, the last thing I think on my list here, <laughs> yeah, the last thing on my list at least was simulated space shuttle launch and landing. And apparently that went a little bit awry for you guys. So well, can you tell us how you basically crashed one of our space shuttles? Yeah, and this is funny because I was there with a bunch of other travel writer blogger folks and yeah. you, we were all big space enthusiasts and we did, we, we <laughs> failed. So I think what the difficulty was is when when you get into the shuttle sim, which is what they call it, this, in, this kind of capsule you climb into with your crew, there are more buttons and levers than you can possibly. It's it's an airplane. You, if you ever look inside an airplane. On steroids. Yeah. Because there's like 5,000 little widgets and things that you have to control. That's not the case in the, the ship they're designing anymore it's it's more touch screens it's more interfacing the way we the way we interact with technology has definitely changed the way they're designing spaceships but the old shuttle was a was an airplane times eight or you know and so they'd say you know (laughs) you have 10 seconds to find this lever and switch it from on to off and you've got to you got to look around and find it right and so i mean i was mission i think i was a mission specialist i was not in charge of launch and landing but it was a lot to i could see it was a lot for our crew to try and manage and so we crashed on the beach. We didn't make it back to the runway. <laughs> well, but I guess crashing on a beach, if you have to crash someplace, is that's better what than I said. In you know, yeah, it wasn't the water hard or the water. Yeah, oh yeah, I didn't even think about worse. the water. I was thinking like a hard surface, but the water. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad you guys made it out alive. We we did. And um, I hope you get to go back. Thanks. Okay, so we could talk again. That could be a whole other show because it sounds like there's so much going on there. And now I really want to go. Um, we talked about that. So okay, so let's talk now about. Um, space tourism in the sense that most people probably think about it out of the gate, which is going up into space. Um, Last week in Le Monde, the French newspaper, I just happened to see an article that said that Virgin Galactic's Richard Branson expected to travel just beyond the frontier with space sometime between now and July. Now, 
he of course has had to push that back, back several times, but he felt confident enough to, to say that. Now that's him. Wait, is that him? Yes, that's him expecting to do that. But when, so presumably we're getting much closer, yep. whether or not he has to push it back again. I, in either, regardless, we're getting a lot closer. Mm-hmm. When do you think we're going to start sending tourists into space? I think you'll see Virgin Galactic do at least one flight this calendar year. So okay. 2019. Yeah. Um, and Richard is going to be one of the first, he's a passenger on the first flight. Right. So when he says right. I'm going, he means our first flight will go. And there'll be other people with him. Yes. I yep. believe it's not all of his children, but at least one of his children will be going oh, really? with him. Yep. They've all paid to go. They wow. have reserved seats on various flights. So they might want to split up that they are not everyone, not everyone. Is going. <laughs> and that's what a lot of people. So it's yeah. a really short story. Yeah. A lot of people say, would you go to space? I say, yeah, on the second flight. Not right. The first exactly. Flight. I, I appreciate exactly. pioneers. I'm not one of them. Yeah. I want to go once we've proven yeah. it. Um, I believe we'll see Virgin do at least one, possibly two. I think you'll also see one of their main competitors. They're, they're all a little bit different, but one of their main competitors, Blue Origin, I think will also do one flight this year. Okay. All right. So it is imminent. Something I learned in preparation uh, for today was that there are three main categories. Um, because, you know, the way I think I just posed the question was, when are we going out? You know, when are we sending tourists into space? But there are different types of tourism in space. Apparently, there are three main types. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what those are and... Um, yeah, and just how they, how they, I guess what they are. Sure. Let's see if I can get, if I can say them correctly. There's, there's suborbital. Yeah. There's, um, orbital or low earth orbital. And then there's lunar. Right. And lunar is uh, the farther away you go from earth, the farther the timeline stretches for when we'll see that happen. Okay. Okay. Good way to think about it. Makes sense. Right. And what we're talking about with, um, say Virgin Galactic and what's mostly in the news right now, insofar as being imminent is this suborbital. Correct. And another thing that I saw along those lines is that, you know, when we talk about, for example, uh, Richard's first foray up into up up into the suborbital world or what have you, they're only going to stay up there for a couple minutes. Mm-hmm. So, what? Tell us a little bit about that. You know, why is the trip so short? One, but then two, um, what do you experience for those few minutes? Why is it worth? You know, I would get it if you're going to go up there for a couple of days or something, but just going up there even for a few minutes, what are you seeing and experiencing that makes it so extraordinary? Sure. So it turns out. <laughs> It's going to, it's going to sound funny, but it turns out it's really hard to go to space. It's rocket, yeah. it's rocket <laughs> yeah. science. It's rocket um, science. There and you go. everything you need to survive must come with you. Yep. So when you look at from a business perspective, trying to build a viable business that takes people to have a space encounter or space experience, if you can keep it short, but impactful, if you can find that balance, and, and this happens actually on a travel, on a global travel scale, as destinations need to find the right balance of what people want to, want to experience and are willing to pay for. Right. That's sort of what you're doing here. But also, how many supplies and resources will you need to keep them alive? Because they need to have everything they need. Unlike here, if you get stranded somewhere, you can maybe flag someone down or go into the nearest coffee shop, depending on where you're traveling in the world. Antarctica may be the exception to that, where yeah. there are not resources available unless you bring them. Right. But unlike Antarctica, every pound you take to space costs you fuel. And fuel and, and the weight and the mass and all that, that's where this is rocket science, it gets very expensive very quickly. Mm-hmm. Or impossible. If the math doesn't work to bring that much mass with you, you, can't, you won't be able to make it. Yep. So a lot of these, so these companies that are looking in the space are trying to find that sweet spot where they can give people the experience 
they can bring the right amount of resources plus extra for emergencies, but they're not bringing so much that it's an, not a financially viable business idea. Yeah. So the business comes into play. Yes, a lot very much. Well, which uh, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I see a lot of ideas about space tourism that are really outlandish. And yeah. I, lo- I want to support everything in the industry, but I also want to support reasonable ideas. Well, speaking <laughs> so. of business, so I got a st- statistic from that Le Monde article and it said uh, Branson's told the the French agents, Agence France Presse, the, the French um, press agency, that he spends $35 million per month on Virgin Galactic per month. And that since uh, the, the 2000s, he has spent a billion dollars. Yeah. And so, I mean, I guess they expect to make that much money from space tourism. Well, because they wouldn't be making that investment if they didn't ex- expect to eventually get it back. I think or, you, I think what you'll find is that in some ways there's a there's a little bit of philanthropy behind this too. And okay. that let's let's come back to your other question which yeah. is what do you experience when you go to space? Right. That the few minutes that you will spend in microgravity, it's actually not zero gravity, it's called microgravity where you are falling back to earth and it gives you the sensation of zero gravity. Uh, during that time, you'll have a view of the curvature of the earth. You will see the thin blue strip of our atmosphere that protects Mm. every piece of life on this planet from the solar radiation and vacuum of space. Right. You will see a world without borders. You will understand that there is so much of what we sort of fight over is, Uh is irrelevant. Yeah. And we are tiny and and insignificant, this pale blue dot that has to be protected. And that they call it the overview effect. Um, it's a, it's a very well-documented experience among astronauts. That is a critically important psychological shift that happens when people go to space. Hmm. It will impact the world beyond dollars. So I believe that when you look at Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, who are the two main billionaire philanthropist business people in this space, yep. they, they're spending a lot of money. I think Bezos says he spends about a billion a year mm-hmm. to try and get his company, Blue Origin, to space. They're not just doing it for the dollars. They're okay. doing it because they know they're going to change people's lives and those people are going to come home and change the world. And that sort of much bigger than how much money they're going I to love make. That. It's also, an, yeah. I mean, it's a burgeoning market, right? The first people to go anywhere never make money. It's building the industry for people to develop later. Right, right. I love that. Okay. Um, and thanks for going back to what they actually see when yep. they're up there because I still had that in my notes and I'm, I'm glad you touched on that because especially that whole idea of that psychological shift. Yeah. Because I had the, you know, I had the concrete things that you see and experience up there, but I didn't have that aspect mm-hmm. to it. And that sounds like that's probably the biggest one yes. or potentially the yeah. biggest one. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So you just mentioned Jeff Bezos. Um, and so in addition to Virgin Galactic, who are some of the other players? I mean, we've heard um, SpaceX, I think is Elon Musk. Can you just tell us a little bit about the, the space, so to speak, of who else is and kind of it, because something I discovered in preparing again for today was that, um, they seem to be taking different sort of approaches yep. and have different, slightly different objectives in some cases. Sure. So can you just give us a quick overview of what, what that entails? Yeah, absolutely. So Virgin Galactic can be thought of mostly as a traditional tourism company, and they've built a sort of rocket plane, sort of the best way to describe yeah, what, their, yeah. what their aircraft or their spacecraft looks like. Yeah. Blue Origin is the next main competitor in space tourism. Their business model is based on both tourism and um, orbital and suborbital payload delivery. So they're sort of building a series of rockets. Some will take people, some will take payloads. Uh, SpaceX, they, they've they approached it more from a commercial payload delivery standpoint first. Obviously, that's what most people know them for is they send things to space. But they have recently sold one, and only one, 
craft worth of human payload. So mm -hmm. this Japanese, I can never remember how to pronounce his name, but there's a Japanese yeah. billionaire who's paid Elon to take him and eight people to the moon and back. Yeah. Around the moon is probably the better way to say it. Well, yeah. And that was, the, that was again, another just surprising thing to me. They're not even just going to the moon. They're actually going to orbit the moon. Yes. Is the, is the objective. Yeah. And in the um, on Wikipedia says that Elon Musk says he hopes... BFR, which presumably is his space vehicle, was yes, was keep going. okay. Whatever the latest one is, <laughs> yep. Well, I don't know. Maybe this statistic probably is no longer correct then. But he, this, the the fact here was that that was supposed to be ready for an unpiloted trip to Mars in 20, uh, 2022. and then the crewed flight would be twenty twenty four. But sorry, that's for Mars. That's yep. not the Moon one. Yep. Uh, I don't. I guess I didn't have a statistic for the moon. Elon you know? has a lot of ideas. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm genuinely behind Elon Musk's mission for humankind. I he he himself can sometimes say he, the wrong po thing. Po podcast behavior might not be up to snuff for yeah. Matthew Felix. I haven't invited him yet. Uh, yeah, I but haven't invited his him. mission for humankind, I'm very much behind. He has a lot of ideas, so he does want to go to Mars. He's now taking um this cr this civilian group around the moon. Um, the sh the ship is now called Starship, not the BFR changes all the time I, I imagine his engineers and his managers and all the operations people are like elon stop tweeting right <laughs> let right. us let us figure out what you gave us last enough week to work enough. on <laughs> yeah twitter's dangerous uh one other just this is sort of a, a side thing to note that i thought was interesting we've talked about the russians just sort of in passing but they've actually already done this they yep. already did orbital orbital space tourism from 2001 to 2009 correct so yep. i thought that was interesting yeah there were i believe it's seven individuals representing nine yes. flights yep that um, were civilians who paid for a seat on the Soyuz rockets that go to the ISS, the International Space Station, and they each got to stay for varying lengths of time, and they paid sort of proportionate to their seat and their time on the ISS and what that costs. Oh, wait, different seats cost different m amounts of money? Uh, the, rocket co the rocket cost sort of You've changes got over time. And, no, um, no. <laughs> what is it? Was it first class and <laughs> if business? You, and... If you ask the astronauts, Soyuz seats aren't, there is, it's worse than economy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, sure. It's not. I'm sure. <laughs> but it's very, as I said, it's very expensive to send anything to space. So if you're sending a civilian, you're giving up a seat for an astronaut and you're needing to bring everything that they need. Okay, wait a second. I had a statistic for how much it cost Okay, here we go. Uh, so from during this time, 2001, 2009, when they were doing that, uh, the Soyuz, uh, da, 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 one, let's see, the publicized price for flights brokered by Space Adventures to the International Space Station aboard a Russian Soyuz spacecraft was in the range, one ticket, $20 million to $40 million Correct. for one ticket. Yep. And I wasn't ranged, able to make it. That ranged between like seven and 14 days, if my memory serves, of how long they spent. So, I mean... It's, oh, it's more of a bargain than it sounds like then. Yeah, it's only like 1.2 or 1.5 million a day. That's yeah. A, these were very wealthy individuals, obviously. Clearly, clearly. Well, no, that's the thing I was also wondering about is, you know, I have a concern from a social perspective here that, <laughs> that maybe space travel is sort of more geared towards um, the higher end of, you know, the more uh, financially well-off individuals. Are any of these companies planning some sort of sliding scale, do we know of, so that you can go uh, based on your own means? <laughs> I think that... <laughs> I'm um, kidding. You're looking very, very serious over there. I, I'm guessing there's not probably going to be a sliding scale. No, but I think that both both Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin are, are acutely aware of the economies of scale. Yeah. Once you, once you build a reusable rocket the and you figure out the price... Right. That can come down. It, yep. it, as I said, the first to do anything, it's going to be more expensive. You're going to lose money. But once you figure it out and you can replicate it, it's going to come down. Right. I, I, Antarctica is the great parallel. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. The only other, uh, the last question I want to ask about just this, the space and other players in the space, because this one uh, seemed interesting, was the Aurora Space Station. 
Uh, do you know this one? So you're laughing because that's what it looked like to me kind of when I read about it. So I'm just going to quote Wikipedia here. Aurora Space Station, a United States startup firm, Orion Span, announced uh, during the early part of 2018 it plans to launch and position a luxury space hotel. Again, talking about um, not everyone's going to space, people, quite yet. Um, but a luxury space hotel to orbit within several years. Project remains in the preliminary stages, and we're going to ask uh, Valerie about that if she knows the latest. But Aurora Station, the name of the hotel, will offer guests a maximum of six individuals, 12 days of staying in a pill-shaped space hotel for $9.5 million floating in the unexplored universe. Uh, the guest cabin, the hotel's cabin measures approximately 43, 43 feet by 14 feet in width. Guests can enjoy non-space food and drinks for a small fee. That was my that was <laughs> my favorite part. Yeah, so I thought you've just paid nine point five million dollars to be there, and they're just going to charge you a little bit if you Perfect. want non space food. And I assume that non space food means that it's just not freeze dried or whatever the packets that we always think of as yeah. space food. I, I, I don't, don't know if they've got a cook up there. You just have to. But it, good news is it won't be much more expensive. Right. It's just You're, a little extra. It's just on top of your nine point five million. Yeah. Or yeah. But uh, but anyway, is that still? <laughs> have you heard anything about that? Is that happening? Yeah. Excuse yeah. me. Sorry for the coughing. That's all right. Um, Yes, so they Orion Span. Um, I made some predictions for space tours, and we're going to come back to them. But one of the ones yeah. we're not going to come back to is the sort of outlandish ideas category. This was one of those ideas that I just didn't see how it was going to make sense. That's not to say a space hotel can't be built. Bigelow Aerospace has actually built a space hotel. They have two inflatable um, habitats already in space. So Bigelow oh, Aerospace, wow. founded by very wealthy businessman Robert Bigelow, out of I think he's out of Colorado. He's already proven that you can build the technology to put these kind of habitats in space. But Orion Span seemed a little bit outlandish because their timeline was exceptionally aggressive and they didn't seem to have the funding secured to make it happen. Okay. So the reason things like Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin are working is because they're basically funded, they're, they're bootstrapped by billionaires. The average person won't get behind that business model if there's no backer to really guarantee it's going to happen right so orion span tried to crowdfund it they didn't crowdfund at kickstarter there's actually it's a it was an investment crowdfunding so you were going to become an investor in the company that whatever you contributed 9.5 million was going to be part of your um you would basically get um assets get in the company and you'd get to go and, to yeah. space as a result for helping make the whole project happen they raised, I believe, roughly 10% of what they needed to oh, raise ouch. in their multi-month campaign. And so the last I saw, because I get these alerts on my email, is that it's very unlikely to happen. It's, it's just not got the, the crowd support, and it doesn't have the billionaire backer to make it happen, unfortunately. Well, if I go, I'll just be taking protein bars because <laughs> I'm not paying extra. I'm not paying nine, after my $9.5 million, I'm not paying extra for they're, food. They're going to weigh you and Sorry. then they're going to re-weigh you with your protein bars and be yeah. like, this is three extra gallons of fuel. What did you do? And I'll be like, well, I need my own fuel and I'm not paying, <laughs> I'm not paying for that food up there. Okay. So you just mentioned your predictions. Yes. And in 2017, you made some predictions yep. that didn't come true. Correct. Quite yet. Uh, but they're about to come true. I think so. And so tell us a little bit more about that. You just mentioned one. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit more about, again, kind of the things we that you think is on the horizon for, sure. for this whole uh, space travel world or space Absolutely. tourism. Yeah. So there's a couple we can, we can really briefly move through. I think that Earth-based space tourism is going to continue to exceed expectations. I yeah. still think it's underestimated. So there's a solar eclipse in South America this summer. They're estimating half a million people are going to travel. I think they're going to hit a million. It's hard to measure these things because it's a one-day yeah. event. Yeah. But I, I think we were seeing 
people are vastly more interested in this topic than anyone has ever measured before. Like the one, like you said, in 2017, mm -hmm. where I think half of California went up to Oregon, yes. right? That, that was the one that went across. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and places like Nebraska had like a million people in, you know, in these towns for like uh, 10,000 people for or one day. Right. Yeah. Right. Like for right. one day they right. had a million people turn up and then drive home. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of space itself, there's this thing that NASA has been working on. It's called the commercial crew program. It's in partnership with Boeing and SpaceX. That's the basically sending American astronauts to space from America. Right now, all of our astronauts launch from Kazakhstan, from Russia. Really? Um, Why yes. is that? Just we don't the have shuttle the... program. When the shuttle program was retired, uh, okay. yeah. we did not have any technology to replace it. So we made a contract with Russia to send our astronauts, which is in the current political climate rather risky. Tenuous, so yeah. uh, I think we'll see SpaceX for sure is going to do at least one, possibly two crew test flights. Um, I think, as I said, we'll see the private sector, Virgin Galactic and or Blue Origin have at least one flight apiece. Um, those are the two really big ones. Oh, and I think once you see them go to space, either of these companies go to space again, you're going to see another round of ticket sales. So they don't actually let people buy tickets anymore because they've sold so many. Yeah. Once they prove it's possible, I think you're going to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to have a new release for 2025. Now you can buy your ticket. Yeah. You know, it'll, in the, yeah. it'll be way in the future like it has been, but they're going to start to build a business into this where they're taking in funds and they're spending it to make the trips happen. Right. And that w that was interesting to me is that you can no longer buy tickets Correct. at the, at the moment. But like right. you said, once they actually do it, the gates will open. Okay. Yeah. So uh, if anyone online or anyone listening live has any questions, I want to open it up for that. But um, I'm going to wait and we're going to look on Facebook. <laughs> and uh, if questions come in, then we will take some questions. So get your questions. Get out the notepad that I told you to uh, have on hand in the beginning of of the show. And, uh, and let us know if you have any questions. In the meantime, uh, what do you have upcoming? Because I saw that you have some tours, that you do yes. some tours. And one of them that looks uh, very interesting, because uh, I've been to Jordan, is Jordan. Yep. I have not been to look at the stars. So can you tell us a little bit about that tour and, and any other, the other, um, you have a couple other uh, trips that you're, that you're leading as well, I it do, looks like. I yeah. do. They're sort of, they're sort of up in the air. Um, it's a, it's rather early. Again, pun intended. Yeah, I'm sorry. That, that was, one wasn't that intended. Was too, that wasn't, I know. That wasn't uh, intended, but that was too good yeah, not I have to Yeah, I make space out. puns yeah. all the time yeah. on accident. Yeah. Um, they, they're sort of in the stage, the planning stage. Okay. Uh, I typically sort of like to see if there's enough interest before I'm going to really commit to having a tour. But the Jordan tour is definitely happening. It's happening in November. Yep. And it, the, the purpose of that tour is to allow people to experience the night sky in a way they haven't before. It's going to be probably the darkest skies most people will have seen. To experience Jordanian culture and hospitality, which is world-renowned. If it's not world-renowned, it should be. It, it is now. It will I, be. I just said it was. Yep, it is now. Um, it is and now. And then I want, there's one particular event I really want people to have an experience of, which is the Arabic heritage in the, the field of astronomy. So I learned this doing oh, yeah. some research. Research is the that Islamic golden age. Yes. Yeah. Um, the Arabic speaking world had a massive influence on the field of astronomy because as ancient Greek, the language of ancient Greek was lost yep. when no one could speak it. No one could doc to translate the documents of mm -hmm. the, all of the mysteries of the stars that had been unlocked. Yep. And where did they turn to get those answers? They turned to the Arabic speaking world. Right. So you actually have this massive heritage. So many of our stars are named after the, they're the Arabic words still, and they have the Arabic meaning and it's very fascinating. Yeah. So one of the nights we're going to hopefully do uh, an astronomy event with the, uh, I believe it's the Jord Amman astronomy group or Jordanian astronomy society or oh, something great, like that great, to great. try and get someone, if someone's willing to come talk to us to say, look, these are the stars. These are why we name them this way. Oh, this is what this means great. to us yeah. and, and let people 
we, the nice thing about loving space is we don't have to, like I said, we don't have to look at borders. I don't believe, like, I believe that there's this global heritage of space and I want people to experience that. And Jordan is a great opportunity to go to the Arabic speaking world and meet with people who are on that cutting edge in their field from a different perspective than we get in the West. I love that. No, that sounds, that sounds fantastic. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, I was going to say I just got distracted by comment. Uh, when I went to to Jordan, which was I don't know how many years ago, three or four, maybe five years ago. Uh, but again, it's a place where, <clears throat> excuse me, other than Petra, again, there isn't a massive tourist industry there. Um, at least, at least that I felt in Amman, just right. walking around. I mean, you know, right, it just right, felt right, right. it was just very easy just to walk around, yep. and people were friendly, and you didn't. I was the only European-looking, you know, American-looking um, person for that I saw for the two days that I was there, yep. except for, you know, maybe once in a while, an exception, but point being, it wasn't, it wasn't flooded with tourists. Right. And again, I'm sure Petra's a different story. Yeah. Um, but point being, I felt really, really welcome there. Yes. And I would definitely go back because there was so much, I was, you know, I was this to the, just there in transit, which is why I was only there for two days. But, um, but I read enough about it to know that there is a lot, a lot, uh, a lot worthwhile there to check out. Yep. And particularly as we're talking about today, the skies, uh, the other thing is Astrolabs. Is it Astrolab? How do you say that? Do you know what I'm talking about? So this is an ancient, I don't know if it's ancient, but a very, very old uh, instrument that mm-hmm. the Arabs from, I think it's from that time period, which is what I was thinking about when you were talking. And it's got all, I think it has all the constellations and they used it for navigation mm-hmm. and they're just beautiful. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's a bit of a tangent, but I was thinking about that when you're talking about their contribution Massive. to astronomy yep. and um, astrolabs I mean, or astrolabes. And I'm sorry, astrolabes. 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 It's yeah. really, it's something that I think we get very Western focused and we look at, you know, what did the Greeks contribute and the Romans contribute and, and the all the Europeans and the Americans. Chinese astronomy is vastly significant Indian astronomy, Arabic astronomy. Um, and then you have all of the other cultures that had their own systems of belief. And many of them are still preserved today and people are practicing and, and operate their lives in accordance with the stars under their understanding, Polynesia, Australia, Hawaii, um, parts of Canada, all of that is, is such a fascinating field to me. In addition to the true like science part that we're proving and living and studying right now. Right. Is there much overlap? Has science has sort of quote unquote Western science recognized? Because um, you know, so much is happening. So, for example, in, in just in a different uh, discipline, but you know, with alternative medicine, mm-hmm. so much was mocked and just you can't prove it. It's it's worthwhile. Right. It's worthless. Whatever. Now science is realizing. Oh, actually, maybe if you meditate, it does help you dealing right. with cancer. It does help whatever. Is there any sort of overlap there yet, or is that probably premature with Western astronomy? <clears throat> excuse me, looking to some of these more traditional. I think we find it's of... like the the dichotomy of science and religion, or science and mythology. Yeah, that we're not right. ready for that yet. Um, yeah. It's sort of a pet project I've been sitting on to do a, a book, which oh yeah, compares. You know, this is this constellation that we see and what we call it, and the and the history of that. And here's what those stars mean scientifically. And here's what they here here's that star which is part of this constellation in China, and it's part of that constellation in India. And this is how the night sky actually works. It's not this. It is this fixed thing in science, but it's also this massively important, meaningful thing. And what the best part is for me, and I get really excited, is we're part of it. Mm-hmm. I was chatting with someone the other day. So astrology is the sister of astronomy. Right. It's making meaning out of our lives from the movement of the stars. Right. 
And I said, you know, what's funny is someday someone's going to be on Mars and they're going to want to read their horoscope. I saw you posted something about this in social uh, media and and, I loved it. And Earth is going to go retrograde. What does it mean when Earth goes retrograde? (laughs) We don't, we've never thought of ourselves as that dot in the sky, but we are a dot in the sky from somewhere else. Yeah. And that is really, I get a very, I like to take that big perspective. That's where I come at this from. Right. But understanding that we as humans have a desire to explore that big place too. Yep. Yep. I love that. I love that. And yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens when it when Earth does go retrograde when we're on Mars. <laughs> what does that mean? What does that mean? Okay, I want to mention uh, two other things you have coming up at some point in this year. They're later on in this year. And I know you said some of this is still sort of developing, but you're going to go to Joshua Tree Yep. in August. Yep. Um, That's probably going to be, It's called. I'm calling it a community trip. Yeah, um, tell national, us about national the parks are National parks are very conscientious about allowing tours and I want to be respectful. Ah, so that's, yeah, it's going to, it's going to be that, that trip is not confirmed because I'm really trying to make sure that I both respect the national park and, and communicate to everyone who attends that tour that this is a, this is a protected space and we want to keep it that way, especially in light of recent headlines. What just happened, right. Um, and I also want people to have the flexibility to do what they want to do. And I'm sort of available when they need me. So mm-hmm. it's going to be probably more of a, an it- a suggested itinerary. And yeah. here's where I'll be. And you're welcome to be there when I am. But you don't have to be. Yeah. Here's what you can do if you don't want to do those things. Yeah. And here's where I'll be stargazing if you want to join me. But you don't have to. Right, right. These places are also good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. That sounds like a great way to do it. Yeah. And then the other one I saw on your site uh, that looked particularly interesting is the Cunard World Space Week Cruise Community Trip. Yep. Which is a long one. But basically you sail... Is it London to New York? No, Southampton. Southampton to New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess you can't sail on a cruise ship from London. But anyway, yeah. So England to New York. So tell, tell us just quickly about that one. I've been, I'm not sure if that one's going to happen, unfortunately. Okay. Mostly because the Queen Mary 2, that ship, yeah. she sells out really. Uh, like there are a lot of very loyal Cunard passengers. Okay. And so I believe the last time I looked, there were very few cabins Uh-oh. left. And no one had reached out and expressed an interest to go. Okay. And so I've left it up in case someone gets a wild hair and wants to yeah. go to the cruise. Because you're doing it for then. sure. I'm not, not, I sure. will go if someone wants to go. Okay. They do this, they do this, I think every year or two years, this world space week where they have, a, they have astronomers, they have an astronaut, they do a planetarium show and they just sort of celebrate space week. But the, I have a lot of other travel happening in that general ballpark too. So I'm not necessarily going to jump on the, on board. You'd kind of be okay if it didn't happen, but if it does, yeah, if even someone better. wants to go, I'd be very happy to go. Yeah. I mean, you're going to get some incredible night skies it out on the like ocean. Yeah, so of course. let's go. Of course. Where is there less light? Right. Right. Valerie, this has been very fascinating. And I even just doing the research, I just learned yeah. so much. And I just, you know, I just thought it was it was such a great idea to have you on because um, because this is in the news constantly. And this is just, again, this new this new sort of burgeoning um, part of, of just what's going on in society, but then tourism and just so. Um, so thank you very much for being here today. Yeah, and I'm going to throw out the links here. So you have uh, spacetourismguide.com yep. is your space related website. And then uh, valisemag.com is your general travel website. And then I want to throw out again, WordSpace Studios is is uh, wordspacestudios.com is where I'm doing the show. So thank you again to uh, Valerie for being here today. That is all for today. Uh, next week, it's New York Times bestselling author of the Amy LeDuc mystery series, Kara Black. will be here talking about her most recent book, Murder on the Left Bank, and hopefully her upcoming book as well, like I said. Thank you for watching and listening. And uh, if you like the show, please share on social media and subscribe, rate, and review on your platform of choice. For more about me, my website is matthewfelix.com and links to my social media books, including my new one, Porcelain Travels. Other podcasts and all the rest can be found there. If you have any comments, ideas for the show, or just want to say hello, I would love to hear from you at Felix on air at MatthewFelix.com. 
Thanks again for watching and listening and have a great week.